Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, AEA Microphones, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 205. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 205 you're listening to. My guest today is Frank Socorro. Frank is a Grammy-nominated engineer and producer. He got his start in the early 2000s working in Miami. He's worked with uh, the producer Salam Remy. Uh, he's also worked with artists Mary J. Blige, Lenny Kravitz, and Lauren Hill. He is a five-time Grammy nominee. We met at the Music Expo san francisco edition recently he was on my panel yeah and that's where we met so started to dig into his background and thought ooh, he would be a great guest so frank socorro coming up here on the working class audio podcast all right grab your coffee cups let's talk about email scams all right so um perhaps you have received one of these type of emails uh let's see the subject in this case is what is the subject recording studio session and it says i hope this email finds you well this is tom lowercase t would like to know if you are available for a recording studio session service how much do you charge per hour and also per day and do you accept credit card as a payment method i will also need the below information from you your name your studio address regards doesn't even sign his name also google tag that as this message seems dangerous here here's one this is from clyde rosencrantz over at uh, republic audio he sent this to me he's in clark summit pennsylvania thanks clyde um what does this one say oh hello good day i'm donna I will like to know if you do audio recording services and do you accept credit card as form of payment? (laughs) Oh my God. Here, Michael Briggs at Civil Audio sent me this. Thanks for that, Michael. Here it is. It says, good day. I'm with no apostrophe. I am. I'm Gunn Leonard and I will like to know if you do offer audio recording service and do you accept credit card as payment? Okay, so you're seeing, obviously, a, a consistent thing. Do you offer some type of recording service in some, you know, in broken robot English, essentially? And do you accept credit card as form of payment? They're all asking the same thing. I'm not experienced with these scams enough to tell you what happens at the end because I've never actually followed through and tried to engage them and uh, book the session one can only presume that there is a ripoff that's entailed and or some type of ridiculousness so if you see these i don't care how broke you are or how desperately you need work to come into your studio please do not accept these identify them they have all the red flags if your gut tells you something is amiss something is amiss that's all there is to it So safeguard yourself. Don't engage these emails at all. Don't don't reply back. Put them in the spam folder. Don't don't even waste your time. And 
really, please do not give out your address or any other personal information. Also be aware of the fact that scams can happen in person as well. How many bands or artists have you worked with who constantly forget their checkbook when you ask them for a deposit and you let it slide and, you know, there's always a pattern. Look for it. Be aware of it and uh, don't let it don't let it slide, you know. But that artist, you know, after the third reminder continues to forget their checkbook, call them out. Just say, hey, man, no problem. Just Venmo me or PayPal me right now. Let's 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 get the business out of the way so we can get to the art. That's if you're dealing with that. That's, you know, those who have managers. Well, you're lucky. You don't have to deal with that. You let the manager deal with it. So that's it. Watch out for those scams, friends. There's some nutty people out there. Our friends over at Universal Audio help make the podcast possible, so we want to direct your attention over to their site at uaudio.com. And I will include a link in the show notes to the most recent promo they have going. That's the classic Apollo Rack promo. That's where if you buy an Apollo 8 quad or an Apollo Firewire interface, you'll get a free UAD2 satellite quad. So you can really add up the DSP there. So I'll include a link in the show notes, of course, and you can check that out. Also want to direct your attention over to GearSluts.com, where we are sponsoring the Audio Life Subforum. And of course, GearSluts helps make the Working Glass Audio Podcast possible. And uh, if you've never been over to the Audio Life Subforum, that is a good place to go if you do not want to talk about gear. Because they're talking about life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, stuff like that. So check that out. Once again, link in the show notes will be there for you. So you can just go over to Working Class Audio and head on down to the bottom of the bio and the details about today's show. And you'll see in the show notes, there'll be a link right there for you. Yeah. And speaking of the WCA website, if you haven't been over to workingclassaudio.com, I encourage you to go over there. There's over 200 guests to choose from to listen to. There's some uh, bonus content for you to check out, some suggestions of things to uh, buy or services to use that we've checked out. And uh, yeah, it's a great place to go. Also, we have a guest suggestion form there, a little Google Doc you can fill out, recommend somebody other than yourself. Please don't recommend yourself. Recommend somebody else. Nominate somebody else, yeah. And uh when it comes time to choose a guest, that's where I go. I head on over to the list and I look through and check out people and do a little Googling on them and find out who they are. And then I reach out to them. Uh, if you don't know them uh, and you don't have a contact for them, that's okay. But it'd be great if you did. And they don't have to be famous. I know everybody wants to hear from famous people. But, you know, we just want to talk to people who are working, doing their job and making a living or trying to make a living. So, yeah. The guest suggestion form over at workingclassaudio.com. All right, well, let's get to it. Let's talk to Frank Socorro in Miami here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Frank, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. It was a pleasure to meet you at our recent Music Expo event, our panel, Survival of the Fittest. Thank you. So you are based in Miami. Yeah. Take us through a little bit of a journey of how you got into audio. What was the thing that triggered you to want to 
be involved in audio. I actually work at the SA Institute in Miami. So it's a story that I like to mm -hmm. share with the students just because um, I think a lot of the kids that come here uh, come from a similar background. So I'm one of seven children. <laughs> we grew up in New York and I grew up spending a lot of time in my grandmother's house. And my grandmother, uh, her two youngest kids, or my uncles, were both DJs. So uh, I kind of grew up spending a lot of time around them and and uh, and watching them DJ in the 80s. And, and, you know, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I really fell in love with music at that time. And for a time, I thought that I was also going to become a DJ and, you know, I would practice. But then one day, one of my uncles, he brings home a sampler and it was like this crappy Gemini sampler that you would hook up to your turntables and mixer. And, and I guess, and I think it had like four seconds or three seconds of sample time, just enough to make like a, a loop. And he showed it to me and I was just like, what? And my brain just went into overdrive thinking about all the cool things that I was going to be able to do now. And, you know, I was like maybe 15 my mind just went nuts. In my mind, I was like, this is how people make music. This is how hip hop is made. Cause that's the kind of music I was listening to. And, and so I was in love with that thing. And I would, every record that I could find, I, if it had a piece I could loop, I'd loop it and like listen to it. And, and then I think that's where the engineer was born because there was a little bit of weird aliasing. And there was also a ground hum because it wasn't balanced and it was coming off of turntables. And I would spend hours trying to figure out how I could get rid of that crappy noise. And I realized that the low end wasn't as good as the stuff that was on the records because of the, obviously the sampler was a piece of shit. Sorry. Can I curse? <laughs> yeah, you can curse all you want. So uh, that kind of started like the technical part of my brain kind of going and then I kind of I would mess with it and try to figure out how I could make it better. And then we got a bigger mixer for the DJ setup with actually had EQs on it. It was like a three band kind of thing. And I was just like blown away by that. At some point there was a school in New York called uh, Institute of Audio Research. And I went and I kind of did some, got some information on it. I was, you know, 18 at this point and I had been DJing and working odd jobs and, um, and I was thinking, considerably going there. And then fortunately for me, at that time, my, my mom decided she was going to move to Orlando. And she was just like, you shouldn't come. And, you know, you know, she was just trying to get me out of the city because, you know, I lived in a pretty crappy neighborhood. And she eventually did convince me. And while in Orlando, I started doing some research, seeing if there was an, a school like the one that I wanted to go to. And, and I found Full Sail. And that was it. You know, I went to Full Sail and... After full sale, I moved to Miami because I didn't want to go back to New York. I had gotten used to the warm weather. <laughs> I stayed. Yeah, I've been here. I moved to Miami in 1999, and I've been here, well, living here for the most part uh, ever since. Uh, from New York to Miami, culturally, what was that like for you? Was that a bit of a shock? A little bit. It seemed, I mean, for Orlando, it was a big shock because Orlando is a lot slower than Miami, and it was way slower than New York. I had spent some time here in Miami before as a kid, like we had visited and, and we actually lived here for a very short time once. So the transition wasn't a big shock for me. I think it was good at the time that I came because I was really focused on my career, on being in the music business. That's, that's all I wanted to do. And so it was great to come here and not have a bunch of people that I knew because it made me spend all my waking hours in the studio. And I think that worked out for the best for me. What was your experience like at Full Sail in retrospect? 
like a lot of kids that I think graduate, like it, it flew by, you know, I made some really great friends and I think I remember more the people that I met as opposed to what I learned. Not to say that I didn't have a great education because obviously I wouldn't have gotten to where I got, but it was all kind of a blur. You know, you're learning a lot of stuff really fast. I think you're so focused on what's going to happen afterwards that maybe you kind of miss some cool moments. But all in all, I mean, it was a great experience. I had a great time there. Um, I made some lifelong friends, people I still talk to today. It was great because I got to Full Sail and I'll never forget the first day they ask you, you know, stand up, say, tell us your name and why you're here. And there was all these kids there that like knew exactly what they wanted to do. And my answer was, well, I want to work in music, but I can't play an instrument. And this seems like something I'd like. And it ended up being true. But I had no idea what was going to happen afterwards. What did happen afterwards? Man, I've been really fortunate. Really, really fortunate. So uh, I moved to Miami about a week in. I get a call from Full Sail. Because because full sail full sail just so I'm clear is in Orlando. Full sail's in Orlando. Miami's okay. four hours away, four hours south. Okay. Uh, so I moved to Miami and I let the people at Full Sail know that I'm moving to Miami. So when they the placement people, career services, you know, start, are trying to figure out what to do with me, they know where I am. So I get a call about a week after, and they tell me that there's a studio that's looking for an intern. Uh, am I interested? And I'm like, of course, that's why I'm here. I'm I'm trying to work. I fax my resume over to the studio and I get a call. I get a call about two or three days later. Uh, at that time, we had answering machines. I come home that day. I was staying with a friend of my dad's, friend of the family, and they go, hey, somebody called for you. And I'm super excited. So I play the, the message and it says, hey, Frank, this is Charles from Heaven Studios. We got your resume. We would love you to come in for an interview. Call me back so we can schedule it. So I'm like, cool. So I call him back. I speak to this guy named Charles. We interview. It goes great. They, you know, ask me when I can start. I start right away. Uh, and that's the beginning. That guy, Charles, is Charles Die. Do you know Charles Die? Uh huh. <laughs> it's Charles Die. So Charles has just opened up his own place. He had just finished working with Desmond and doing the whole Live in La Vida Loca thing. Uh, and he's, you know, the Pro Tools darling at DigiDesign. They love him. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he he mixed Live in La Vida Loca. He, he, it's the first record that was then completely inside of Pro Tools ever. Okay. Uh, okay. And then and to go number one, to go number one. So that's that's the uh, that's the, the big thing for them. So it was recorded, mixed entirely inside of Pro Tools. So I get to the studio. I start working with Charles. I don't really I know the song. But I don't know all of this other information about like it being totally in Pro Tools. Charles at the time is immersed inside of Pro Tools. Now we're talking Pro Tools 3 to Pro Tools 4, like that version. Charles has one of the biggest Pro Tools systems uh, at the time. It was when back when they had the farm cards and the DSP cards. He had a seven card system with a Macintosh G3 and a chassis and you know, 888-24s and like all this stuff, like all the plugins, like for me, even coming from Full Sail, I had only had like a little bit of experience with Pro Tools and the system wasn't that big and it wasn't something that, you know, I even knew anything about. And it was only later that I came to find out like how big a deal that system was at the time. So it was very powerful. Charles loved Pro Tools. I guess he kind of had like a method to how he Pro Tooled. You know, he had a, one of those Kensington four button mouses very early on. 
I have uh, one. Yeah, <laughs> I still use one. I mean, it's that's my mouse. With the programmable buttons. Exactly. That was the key. So his thing was, you know, he'd tell me this all the time. And I tell this to young guys too. He would tell me, he said, look, your engineering skills suck. He's like, you don't have enough experience. He's like, but you can learn this program and you can learn to use it really well. So really early on in my internship, he would have me, you know, in the hot seat and have me recording. And it was a boot camp and I'd be doing stuff and he'd go, why did you do that? And I'd go, well, I'm trying to get this done. And he'd go, well, you took three extra steps. He's like, learn your quick keys. It was intense. It was intense. It was like sitting there and getting your hand slapped like all day, like during your recording. So not only are you nervous, but you also have Charles going, what are you doing? You're wasting time. You're you're losing the moment. So it was really intense. And what ended up happening was, is I became really fast at Pro Tools, <laughs> like scary fast. Like I tell people now, I'm like, I'm not even half as fast as I used to be because obviously, you know, it, it's my engineering skills are, are way better and I don't have to rely on just being fast. So I spent two years with Charles like that. It translated into me becoming very popular here in South Florida because of my speed and my chops on Pro Tools. Charles was really early on the hot keys. We actually, I tell people this all the time. There's a program on the Mac called Quick Keys. Do you remember that program? Yeah. Where you, you could program, like, that's where we were at, at the studio. Like, we were programming Quick Keys and, like, trying to figure out how to do things faster and more efficient. And and it was always in flux. Like, Charles would be like, oh, I wish I had a key for peripherals, like a Quick Key to open up peripherals. And then, so we would try to figure out some key combination and then some letter that would make sense so we could remember it. and. It was just that kind of level of wanting to be better at Pro Tools. So it was a great like post-graduation kind of thing for me where I just, I was just embedded in this thing. And you have to remember that at that time, this is like 2000 to 2001, there were still people who were telling you that Pro Tools wasn't going to stick around. (laughs) This was a fad, that this wasn't going to work, that it doesn't sound as good, that people will always go back to analog and I eventually saw a lot of those guys struggle uh, with finding work once Pro Tools really took a hold. And when it took a hold down here, it really took a hold. Like it caught like wildfire once people saw how much work they could actually get done. Yeah. And because I had just, I had been working with Charles and I actually had the the access to that system and, and, and his, you know, experience with Pro Tools because he had been kind of on it and really pushing with it. When I would show up to studios as this young engineer guy, it was just like, who is this kid? You know, and why is he so fast? Why does he know Pro Tools so well? And it got me a lot of work. It got me a lot of, it got me out there really quickly, independently making money as a freelance engineer. I worked and I worked and I worked. People would call me and and they knew what they were getting when they called me. Then I would show up with my mouse, my four button mouse. Looking back on that period, say 90 let's say even 98 to mm-hmm. maybe, I don't know, maybe 2004, 2005. I really can put myself in, in that time period and imagine you coming in and being so badass at it and everybody clamoring to get someone like you involved because it was such a new thing. I'll never forget. I was at the studio and we had a studio manager. Her name was Kim. And Kim calls me one day and she goes, hey, there's a studio here that's really big called Circle House. A lot of people come there. It's, it's, a, it's two houses. They're across the street from each other. And there's about six studios in them. 
and it's got a pool and a cabana and all this really, really cool stuff. Uh, and people love recording there because it just feels like you're on an island somewhere. It's a great, great, great environment. And she calls me and she goes, hey, Puffy and Bad Boy Records are here and they're at Circle House. They're, they're, they're holed up at Circle House and they're auditioning engineers. She's like, do you want to try? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, that was a big deal. So I go to Circle House and they have a project manager and his name is John Eaton. And we go upstairs and there's this little like production room. And he goes, okay, well, I want to try some stuff and then see how you do. Now, these are guys are coming from New York. And so I'm like, okay, cool. So he gives me at that time a CD. He goes, can you import these audio tracks into Pro Tools? And I looked at him and I was like, uh, are you serious? Like, that's like part of your challenge. Like, I'm just like, I'm like, okay. So I do it. And he goes, okay, uh, can you line up the tempo for this? And I'm just like, this is a joke, like whatever. <laughs> so I, I'm like doing it. And he's like looking at me. He has like a, he has like a, one of those two way pager things. And he's like texting in his pager and he's like, did you do it? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, show me. And like, I show him, he goes, oh, okay. He goes, okay, well, there's a chorus in there. Can you double up the chorus and then fade it out at the end? And like, he goes back into his pager and then looks up and he's like, and I'm looking at him like, I'm done. And he's like, did you do it? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, no, you didn't. I'm like, yeah. He's like, play it. And I play it. He goes, oh. He goes, okay, well, do these fades and do these crossfades and kind of cut out the verse and double this. And I'm like doing the edits as he's talking. And he's like, you're done? And I'm like, yes. Like, he's like now frustrated. Like, what is happening? And then he's just like, okay, okay, you're hired. So I go on, I'm on the gig and we're recording and they have other rooms where there's mixing and they have Prince Charles Alexander and Tony Maserati mixing. And at different points throughout their mixing of the sessions, they had issues where maybe somebody needed to add something or somebody wanted to record something. And I was called into the room and one of them was Prince Charles. They had originally dumped a two track from a DAT to Pro Tools and recorded over it. And as you well know, DATs have motors. So the pitch was kind of going a little bit back and forth and so was the timing and then they had the original track which was done on an mpc and when they dumped in the track from the mpc it didn't line up tempo wise so he was like how do i fix this and i was like oh let's just make a tempo map from the dat track and then we'll midi time code that or midi beat clock that to the mpc and then every time the tempo shifts it'll shift on the mpc and he looked at me and he was like what? So I, I do the tempo map and then I'm like, okay, now we're going to send MIDI beat clock so that it goes to the beat and not actual time code. And then it'll just adjust itself. And sure enough, it, we dump it down. And he was just like, that's amazing. I would have never been able to fix that. And he was like so happy. And then uh, another, I don't remember the thing that happened with Tony, but I remember them calling. They're like, just call Frank. Cause there was an issue with Pro Tools that he couldn't, and he just, I came down and I fixed it. And he was just like, that's awesome. He was like, that's, that's so cool. He was like, I need you here in this room. I'm like, well, I can't sit in here cause I have to record. But he, I was like, if you need me, I'm upstairs. You know, for me, like he would want to talk to me. And I was like, I don't know what to say to you. You're Tony Maserati. <laughs> and I was so like intimidated, but there are just moments where they were just like, get that kid down here. Like he, he knows his shit. And that really solidified a lot of things for me. I got like three years of bad boy work because of that session. Like every time they were in Miami, they would call me 
And they'd be like, come to the studio. Puff called. He said he wants you at the studio. And it was just this amazing, like, just time for me. Like, I worked all the time. And it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. I wasn't dealing with people on the same stratospheric level you were. But I remember at the time of, because I was a, a, a very early adopter to Pro Tools. And people mm. around me would, my friend Josh would joke and say, uh, we got a question. Call in the wolf with a you know a, re a, a reference to Pulp Fiction, Pulp Fiction. right? With Harvey Keitel's character, get the wolf in here and he'll figure it out. So that's you went through a very very similar thing. That's amazing. Well, so you were working all the time. Does it go without saying? I mean, were you were you making a living? Would you think you were being paid well? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is early two thousand, so record budgets were you know stratospheric and they were great and and you know i, I kind of left this out but when i met the project manager john before i go into the into the inner into the the interview or whatever i talked to kim because I, I at that point i was making you know 30 bucks an hour 35 bucks an hour here and there which was good for me you know i was just starting and i go well how much should i charge and she goes charge as much as you can so i was like well, what does that mean you know, I was like, oh, I didn't know. So when I I do my interview with John, he goes, okay, I want you to start right away. He's like, what's your day rate? I look and I go, uh, $750 a day. And he goes, it's a little high. Could you come down a bit? And I was like, no. And he goes, okay. And that, <laughs> that was it. Holy and shit. I made, yeah. <laughs> And I made, and I was like, what? I was like 22. And I made that amount of money for six months uh, every day. And then at the end of the six months, the album was finished. It was the end of the album. Everything was mixed. Everything had been sent to mastering. Everybody was done. The producers had gone home. Engineers, most of the engineers had gone home. And I was at the studio and I was doing backups. At that time we had, I don't know if you remember those mezzo or uh, what was the oh, other one? Oh, God. Retrospect or Mezzo? Retrospect. We used Mezzo, but Retrospect was around. And you had me remember, you remember you had those tapes? Uh -huh. take, yeah. So I'm doing backups. This is not something that was required of me, but just something that Charles had instilled in me. He's like, always back everything up and have multiple backups and, you know, make sure you know where everything is and everything is labeled. So in the time that I was there working for them, I had worked with the a project coordinator to kind of create a system of backups because they didn't have one. So I, I kind of organized everything and had the system of backups. So sessions over, it's like 6 a.m. I had been there for a, probably almost two days and I'm doing backups and I'm cleaning stuff up and making sure all the sessions are where they're supposed to be. And Puff actually comes into the studio by himself and he comes into the room and he goes, uh, where is everybody? And I was like, I think everybody left. And he's like, the producers too? And I was like, yeah, everybody's gone. And he's like, is it just you here? And I'm like, I think so. Me and the security guard. And he's like, why are you still here? And I was like, well, I still had work to finish up and I wanted to make sure everything was nice and tidy before, you know, we send everything off. And he's like, I'm going to LA tomorrow. I need somebody just like you. And I was like, okay, let's go. He goes, okay, I'll talk to Kim, which was his uh, coordinator, Kim Lumpkin. And he's like, Kim's going to get you your flight. Uh, we're leaving today. And I, when I went to LA for another six months with Puff and like worked out of his house in, uh, in, uh, what's it called? Benedict Canyon in, uh, in the hills for six months, making the same amount of money. So for pretty much that entire year, I made that same amount of money. 
That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. Oh, so it was a great time for me. Yeah, I mean, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I loved rec- I love recording. It's like my favorite thing ever because I love being part of the creative process and and I got to go there and we worked on a bunch of records that came out and you know, you're in California. It's my first time. And I was just in awe of everything. You know, he's living in this huge house that I was like pretty much living in myself. And there's like chefs and, you know, butlers and, and there's a roof and you can see this, you can see all of Hollywood and like the sunsets and you're just like, this is amazing. And I can't believe somebody's paying me to be here. Yeah. And that was like another six months of that. And then I came home and, uh, and I kept working, you know, obviously having made that amount of money or knowing that I could charge that all my local clients, I just was like, look, I didn't go up to that level with them, but I was like, look, I I can charge more now because I have all these credits now. And you know, when you're working in those, those, those album and writing camps where there's like five to 10 songs being made every day and you're recording on them, eventually all those things end up on albums. So within those first couple of years, like I ended up with tons of credits on a bunch of albums because those songs ended up on on some album. And it just it just really helped with everything. And it, and it was a great feeling. And, you know, being able to like talk to my little brother and him liking a song. And I'm like, I worked on that. Like, that's my name's on there. And my brother calling me, he's like, I just bought this album and I saw your name, you know, <laughs> you know and him being more excited about it than me. Like, it was great. It was a great feeling, like. To kind of like, this is what I've been doing. This is why I don't come home or this is why I don't call. Like, I'm just. Would you attribute that that uh, success to, in some degree to your experience with Charles? Absolutely. 100%. I tell people all the time, I'm like, because Charles actually works here at the school with me. We actually work here together now, which is awesome. And I tell people like in the beginning, I'm like, there's a guy you're going to meet in your last module. He is my Obi-Wan. If it wasn't for him, I would have not been where I was for sure. For sure. And I tell him that all the time. I'm like, you're being tough on me and showing me like everything you knew and just having like the confidence in me that I could do it. He's I'm like, that really is what allowed me to, to be the person that I became just that. And you know, the work ethic that we had at that studio and the organizational just everything like charles is a super anal person yeah sounds sounds like he is yeah there wasn't a file out of place ever and we knew where everything was at all time and i just took that everywhere i went and it just it made for you know a a a better product from as as far as i'm as far as you know me being the product like it just made a better you know engineer overall and then as time went on and i got my chops and you know i learned to listen better and it just got, you know, better and better for me. And and I absolutely owe him a lot. Hey, our friends over at Audio Technica have sent me a three pack of drum microphones to check out. I haven't tried them out yet in full disclosure, but I'm going to take them into a session and uh, do some drum recording and let you know how they perform. But let me tell you about it. It's the uh, ATM230PK. It's a three-pack of drum microphones with a hypercardioid polar pattern, all steel construction. Uh, they come with a built-in drum mount, uh, the AT8665, and a protective pouch. Uh, the whole pack retails for $350, and apparently they contain a proprietary capsule designed to take a high sound pressure level. 
I'm going to try these out and I'll report back. Like I said, the, the design is very compact, but it's very rugged. Looks like they could take a beating from some drummers who decide that they're going to aim their sticks in the direction of the microphones. We all know how that goes. Anyhow, I will uh, put a link in the show notes. I will also check them out myself and report back, as I said, and let you know how they work. Yeah, the ATM230PK drum microphone three-pack from Audio-Technica. All right, let's get back to it. Allow me to um, jump ahead to where you're at now. I want to connect the dots between those years of working with Puffy and Bad Boy and and making this this great money. How did you come to work at SAE? And and I say this with respect is that obviously things slowed down, did they not? Well, I slowed them down. Night of the Grammys in 2010, I quit. I was on top of the world, but I was very unhappy as a person. I had a daughter who was three and I barely saw her. I had gotten divorced. For a long time, I thought money was the answer to problems. And over those three years of missing everything that my daughter did for the first time, I realized that it it just wasn't as important. And I actually didn't know how to balance it. I didn't know how to say, oh, I can't do this gig today. I thought that if I turned down a gig, I was never going to get called again, which is something that a lot of us suffer from, thinking that we have to take every gig and that every gig is the last gig. I was at the Grammys. We were we had a house because we kind of had, I, and when I say we, Salam and I, we kind of had been living in LA part-time, you know, going back and forth. We'd be out there for three or four months. If you could just explain who Salam Remy is. Salam Remy is a very, very successful music producer. He's been around since the early 90s. He actually worked on the Fuji's The Score album, uh, which is a very big album, and then uh, went on to produce a bunch of stuff uh, with Nas. And it was with Salam that I was able to record Amy's Back to Black. And we have to mention, too, that you have the, the Salam Remy connection uh, directly connects you in degrees of separation to Gary Noble, who has yes. been on the show. Gary Noble is WCA number 181. And you both worked with Salam Remy. And we both worked on that album. And I worked closely with Gary for the majority of the time that I worked with Salam. So Gary had been Salam's main engineer. But at one point, Gary, as most engineers do, moved more into the mixing arena. Uh, and I was doing uh, most of the recording because I loved recording. So then Gary and I would work together a lot, you know, and, and I'm very happy to be working with him because Gary's a great teacher. He's really good and he's very patient. So whenever, you know, if I recorded something and he was like, ah, oh, can you take this off or take the compressor off or whatever? And I'd be like, yeah, sure, no problem. Just because I knew at the end, the most important thing was the mix. Back to Grammys 2010, we're at the Grammys. We had been in LA from the week before. We were doing a bunch of projects. We were working with Nelly Furtado and working with J. Cole. And I went to the Grammys. Grammys were over. I went back to the house. I was planning on leaving the next day and going home and taking like a week off. And Salam was like, hey, they just booked us for another week with Nelly Furtado. So we're going to have to stay. Like, we'll just change all the flights. And I lost it. I was like, nope, I'm not doing that. Like, I'm done. And he was just like, what? And I was like, I'm done. I was like, I quit. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't love it anymore. And I went home and I sat in my house for like a year 
It was really bad. When I tell my story, I, I don't leave this part out. And I tell people because I think a lot of times we get caught up in the industry, you know, the team no sleep and, you know, work harder than everybody else. And uh, while that's all great, you have to make time for yourself. You have to make time. I didn't make any time for myself. All I worried about was work. And it became it became not fun for me anymore. It became like this thing that I did and, and uh, I wasn't happy. So I quit. And then like a year in, I was like, I'm going to run out of money soon. So I should probably get a job. And I called SAE and I said, hey, do you guys need any teachers? And they were like, well, yeah, but, you know, send us your resume and then we'll see. And, you know, the internet. <laughs> so I sent over my resume and it was funny because they called me like the next day. They're like, hey, do you want to come in? Uh, and about a week later, I was teaching a microphone class. And <laughs> and it was great because I love recording and I love mics. And I love just miking things, especially drums. And I tell the kids here when they come here, I'm like, this place saved my life because when I first started teaching, people would be like, hey, do you still record? And I'd be like, no, I don't do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. And I was like really kind of bitter about it. I couldn't find the joy in it anymore. And through working here and teaching the kids and seeing how excited they would be when they would come in, it brought my excitement back. And seeing like their eyes light up when I'd be like, oh, you know, if you patch the oscillator onto a channel and then we sidechain it to the kick on the SSL, we can create kind of like this 808 sound. And I would do that and they would just be like, oh my God, that's amazing. And it was that that really allowed me to slowly like go back to recording and mixing and to kind of the point where I'm at now where I have my own studio and I'm working again regularly. But now I just know how to balance it better, you know, how to say, hey, you know, I don't I don't normally take sessions on a Sunday because I spend it with my family. And it's that balance that I think that enough people, like really successful people, sometimes don't talk about. And I, I wish they would because it would probably help a lot of young people who are coming up in this industry who only see what other people tell them, which is you have to work, you know, 28 hours out of the day, which is ridiculous. And it's detrimental to your health. Do you think that that people were taking you for granted when you were at that level? No, not at all. Like I always say that the entire thing was just me. Like I was really pushy as far as getting work. I remember, and this is, uh, it's personal, but I had my wife and I broke up in November, like around this time of the year, it was like around Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was at Salam's and, and Salam was like, man, this like, he's like, I feel really bad. And I was like, why do you feel bad? And he was just like, well, I kind of feel like it's my fault. I'm like, it's not your fault. I'm like, I'm the one who chooses to come to work every day. So I'm like, don't worry about it. And he was like, oh, cool. I was like, he was like, hey, you know, they're calling us about the first Sex in the City movie, which we did. And I was like, let's go. And he's like, I mean, he's like, you don't want to take any time off? And I was like, no. I was like, let's go. I was like, this job is going to set us up for like five more years of work right afterwards. Like that was my mentality. And it was sure, like sure enough, like we went and we did the gig. We were there five months. I worked every day for five months on that movie. And the work afterwards just poured in. And like I was able to just bury my head in work. You were doing work on the soundtrack? We worked on the soundtrack and we also worked on what they call scores, which is like you know how they have like the score right and then they have source material which is like the needle drop stuff okay so sometimes they can't clear the needle drop stuff 
So then they'll have somebody create something similar, like Got a it. sound alike. So we worked on the soundtrack. Um, and we did a bunch of songs. There's a song on there with, uh, I, uh, maybe that was on the second one. There, we did a song with like Fergie. We did some stuff with Joss Stone, a bunch of people, like A-listers, and that were on the soundtrack. And then we did a bunch of stuff that actually ended up in the movie. And then uh, they were really big on using the songs that we were creating for the soundtrack and actually using them in the movie too. So then we were like doing edits and like, you know, we'd be in the editing rooms watching the edits and trying to figure out what would be cool, you know, musically. And then and so on some other films, we actually like would do like some sound effects stuff, like just musical sound effects, like, uh, you know, orchestral stuff and and just like little little breakdowns of the theme and, and just the little versions that they could just put in there to spice up the scenes where they didn't want to use like needle drop stuff. So it was cool. I, we did a bunch of that. We did that. We did the last rush hour film. We did sex in the city Two. We did, there was a Mike Tyson documentary that we did. We did another movie called after the sunset with Brett Ratner, which is how we got to do the last rush hour. And then just auditioning for different stuff we actually worked on a theme that didn't end up being chosen for that movie, uh, Hancock with Will Smith. We were like working on the theme and they ended up not going with something else, but that was pretty cool. You were, you were flying high in, in this position. <laughs> so I, I do have numerous questions about your yep. time. I mean, first of all, you were making a shit ton of money. Yep. What did you do with all that money? Uh, I didn't do a lot with it actually. Good for you. You saved. Yeah. I did. That's how I was able, when I quit, I was able to kind of just sit around my house for a while and not do anything because there was money there. I lived, I lived way below my means. I drove a Honda Civic the entire time. Good like, for I you. Did, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't do anything crazy. Yeah, I, I didn't really do much. I didn't really do much. In the beginning, it was just like paying off bills and, you know, my loans and, and paying stuff back. But then after a while, like you're all caught up and you're just, you know, I moved into a slightly bigger place but not nothing crazy, nothing out of the ordinary. I think the thing that I spent the most money on was like eating. Like I was just really big on like eating really good food. That was pretty much it. Hmm. And I still kind of live the same way. Like I don't. You're not extravagant. No, no. Like I like things that are, I like good things. Yeah. You know, like if I'm going to buy something, it's going to be the best version of that that I can buy. But, you know, they make fun of me here because I've, established a uniform for myself so I, today it's actually a, a weird day but i usually wear a white button-up shirt and jeans and i wear the same thing every day uh, obviously it worked for steve jobs <laughs> it's just really easy like you get up in the morning you know exactly what you're gonna wear and you don't have to think about it it's just like it makes your day go easier so if i may ask was your work work-life balance or imbalance i should say that was that the cause of your divorce uh yeah yeah, I didn't spend a lot of time with Mac's wife and she was really great because she never was like, oh, you're never home or anything like she never she was a painter and she who became an art teacher. She understood the desire to be a creative person who's successful. She never really like fought me on it, but it's probably why it didn't end up working out because it was just like we eventually became like roommates because it would just be like two people that just passed each other at random times of the day yeah. ships you know, passing so. in the night or exactly or in the day so it was just, yeah it was just kind of weird so and it, it's not an uncommon story so 
So if you've been listening to the past several shows, you know that I've mentioned that AEA Ribbon Mics is going to send over the new KU5A Super Cardioid Ribbon Mic for me to try out so we could hear it on my voice. Well, you're hearing it right now. This is it. That's right. Let me tell you about the stats here as you listen to it and draw your own conclusions. Me personally, I love it. I'm really enjoying it. It's a super cardioid polar pattern. Uh, it's got active electronics in it. So the concept is, is that you can use it with any preamp because passive ribbon mics have low output and require high gain preamps. So that may not always be available. So the idea here is with the active electronics, you can use it with any preamp. And in this case, the chain that I'm using it with is into my Apollo 8P from Universal Audio. Got 50 dB of gain. I'm using the Neve preamp, the basic 1290 preamp from Universal Audio. And of course the Phantom Power is on and you're listening to it with uh, very little processing on it, except for the limiting on the stereo bus of the podcast. Yeah. To me, it sounds really super smooth on my voice. I'm really enjoying it. I'm kind of right up on it too. So it's uh, been designed so that you can use it on stage, li yeah, live, or even outdoors without fear of damaging the internal components um, or the casing. And uh, it's got a switchable high pass filter on the back, little button you push in. It can take a maximum of 140 dB SPL. Yeah. So I'll put a link in the show notes. But yeah, here it is. KU5A from AEA Ribbon Mics. Loving this. Yeah. All right, let's get back to it. So you quit, you get out, you you take some time off, and you get back into it at SAE. And now you're working again. How do you treat it all differently now? You know, and like one of the things that I I, I brought up during our our panel is just like when somebody calls me about work, I have like an email that I send them of what I'm going to do, how much they're going to pay. And it's very cut and dry. And, you know, I, I don't do a lot of pro bono work because I feel like any free time that I have, I want to dedicate to my family and the things that actually make me happy. The priorities are different. My priorities are way different. And if I don't need to go to the studio, I'm not going to go to the studio. Whereas before, if I didn't have anything to do, I would go to the studio. And now it's like, no, I'd rather go to the beach with my kids or, you know, I'd rather go to dinner with my wife and, and you know, or something or just sit at home or I don't know, anything but go to the studio. Was there a temptation to partake in any drugs or alcohol or excessive behavior in those years? No. <laughs> the funny thing is, so as a kid growing up, I smoked tons of weed. Even while when I started at Full Sail, I was like a pretty heavy smoker. And then one day I smoked and I went into class and I forgot there was a test. And I'm sitting there taking this test and I'm like, I, could, I would read the question, and then when I would go to answer it, I couldn't remember the question. That's how high I was. <laughs> and I, you know, needless to say, I bombed the test, and I said, I will never, ever do that again. So my entire time working, uh, even to this day, like, I will be completely sober when I'm working. And it's not like people don't ask me. And my answer, and I tell kids this all the time, if you say this, people will think you're cool. I go... Not when I'm working, I'd rather focus and make sure that everything I do is correct. 
And people were just like, oh, cool, man. Yeah, make my stuff sound good. And that was how I got out of, like, I guess the peer pressure of doing that. And then when I started working for Salam, Salam is a completely sober. Salam has never had a drink in his life, nor has he ever smoked weed. So he's a completely sober person. So it just made it easier just being around him. Like nobody ever asked him to do it. So nobody would ever ask me to do it. And when it was just he and I, like it was water or juice or something. So it was easy to just not fall into that. I'm sure if I would have worked with somebody else, it might have been different. But with him, it was just super clean cut, you know, straight edge. I want to once again go back to Charles Dye. His attention to detail, did it affect other parts of your life as well? Yes. My earliest interactions with Charles, I had come into work and that day, I mean, I was pretty much living in somebody's house while I was interning for him and, you know, living out of of a suitcase. And I came to work one day with my shirt was wrinkled and I came in and we worked pretty much like half the day. And then he pulled me into the office. He said, let me talk to you. I said, yeah. He said, why is your shirt wrinkled? I was like, oh, I kind of just pulled it out of the dryer. And he's like, you should never be here looking messy. He's like, you represent the studio. He's like, you represent me. He's like, and I would never do that. He's like, so I expect you to every day when you come in here, you'd be as neat as I am. And I was like, okay. And that translated forever. Like when I'm at work, I try to look as nice as possible. And it makes people like, I don't know, they feel like you're more on it just because your clothes are clean and you're pressed. And I have this crazy beard now that I've grown. But for the most part, when it's time to go to work, like I'm pretty clean cut and people appreciate it. It just feels like more professional for them. Yeah, I know that you mentioned Tony Maserati. I notice uh, Tony oftentimes dresses quite sharp. Mm -hmm. He's a very sharp dressed Mm -hmm. man. Yeah, it makes a difference. It's weird, but people just treat you different. There was a point in time where I was like, and I, I never went through with it because, you know, Salam was like, don't do that. Please don't do that. But I was I was enamored with the way that the Abbey Road guys used to dress with the suits and the lab coats. And I was like, I want when we had the uh, we had the the Abbey Road. Have you ever seen that Abbey Road book with all like the mics and stuff? And like, yeah, the, the uh, recording the Beatles book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've got one right yeah. here. Uh, uh, Brian Kihu's book. So we had, somebody had given Salam like a hardcover coffee table, like really big one version. I don't know what, but, uh, and I remember looking in there and being like, this is amazing. I was like, I want to dress like this every day. And he was like, please don't do that. <laughs> but I was seriously like, I'll just wear a black suit and a black tie every day uh, and get a lab coat. I was like, I want to look that cool when I'm engineering. It's interesting you say that. I was watching uh, Conan O'Brien went to Third Man Records in, in Detroit mm-hmm. and recorded and they pressed it to vinyl and they went to Third Man Records vinyl pressing plant mm-hmm. and everybody had like a sharp looking uniform. Uh, well, and to this day, I think everybody at Electrical Audio, Steve Albini's studio in Chicago, they all wear the jumpsuits with the electrical logo. Yeah. I think that's really cool. I, that I always tell people, if I ever have a studio big enough where I can have like a, an entire staff, we're wearing a uniform for sure. It's cool. I, I definitely will agree with you there. To me, there is a level of cultiness about it. It's kind of a little bit like a cult, yeah. but... <laughs> I'm just really, I really, really love the technical aspect of engineering. And, you know, yeah, I love the creative process and everything, but like just I'm a freaking nerd at heart and I just love like really technical stuff and understanding why this works and, you know, why this mic sounds this way and and, and why this works with this instrument and why you would place this here. And and it's not like a, 
it's not where you think it would go, but it goes here because, you know, physics and I love all that stuff. So to me, that just kind of like is an extension of that, of being a scientist kind of thing. Well, the work you do today, do you continue to work with high profile people or is it mostly local people? Not as much. You know, I do my things here and there. You know, Salam and I still have a really good relationship and, and I do stuff with him. But I've been like after I started working here and I kind of got back into it, I went for a few years where, you know, the entire time I lived here before all that stuff happened, I was living in Miami, but I was working on big artists, people that weren't from here. And I just had this feeling like, you know, I've been here forever. I live here. But I've never felt like I gave back to the audio community here. So I sought out, I started finding like artists that were local that I actually thought were cool and worth me investing time into. And I would just find people. Uh, one of the first artists I, I work with is this artist named Stephen A. Clark. And he just put out an album not so long ago, which is amazing. And I found him through just social media and stuff like that. And I remember I just hit him up. And I was like, hey, man, my name is Frank. Like, I'm an engineer. I really dig your stuff. And he responded and we started talking. And, and he was like, hey, man, I'd really love to come by and play you some more music that I have. And I was like, sure. So he came by and played me some more music. And I was like, hey, man, I would love to mix your record. And he was like, great. How much are you going to charge me? And I was like, uh, nothing. Like, I just want to work on cool stuff. And he was like, what? So we created this relationship. And through that, I met a bunch of local artists and people that I still talk to today and, and work with. And just kind of cultivated this, you know, kind of giving back stuff to, you know, people who I thought were deserving of it. And it eventually led to just a bunch of gigs from people just, you know, who know me from being here in Miami. And I, I really enjoy that. Did you ever um, have a manager? Nope, never. And do you feel that if you had a, uh, maybe a, a change of heart and wanted to get back into it deeply. Do you think that that would be an easy thing to do to just, I mean, can you call up? Well, he's no longer called Puffy, but you know, can you, can you reach out to people like P Diddy and say, Hey man, I really want to do this again. I'm pretty sure I can. It would just take a good amount of sacrifice of some of the things that I've grown to love, like my time yeah. and a lot of my freedom. So, you know, and it's not something that doesn't cross my mind on a regular basis, but it's, I honestly, sometimes it scares me to try to, you know, cause I, cause I'll always go back to how I felt and how it was like, it was miserable. And it was like, do I really want that? Is it worth it? I don't know if I'm, if I'm willing to, to do that. I'm a lot older now, you know, I'm, I don't know how willing I am to be up till eight in the morning recording or mixing or doing, you know, you're much happier now. I assume I am. I mean. I have this beautiful condo that oversees the entire bay and I can see downtown Miami from my house and I'm mm, like seven minutes from the beach. So, you know, once or twice a week I get up in the morning and I ride my bike to the beach and I watch the sun come up all by myself, super quiet and, you know, just like the quietest, most me time you can ever have. And then usually the rest of the day is just cake after that because I just... You know, it's just, it's amazing every morning. And then it's just kind of cool to just get your day started like that. So I don't know how much I'd be willing to give that up. And how many kids do you have at this point? I have two. I have a yeah. girl, she's 12, and I have a little boy who's five. Spending time with them, I'm sure, is very important to you. Um, I can, you know, I've got two kids myself, so I completely relate. 
Yeah. How old are your kids? Uh, 10 and 12. Oh, okay. Yeah. Two boys. Nice. Your, your story is, it's, it's fascinating on so many levels. It's also a cautionary tale to those who mm-hmm. really are thinking that that is the solution, being extraordinarily in demand and successful. It's funny how like those, ex, those extremes really, ultimately it's like, well, I think maybe the, you know, the source of my, all my happiness will be in money or uh, working all the time or, you know, and it just doesn't ever seem to be that. No, it's never is. And, and you know, it's something that people say like, oh, money doesn't buy happiness. Money doesn't buy happiness. And when you're making a shit ton of money, you think that you're happy, or at least I thought that I was happy. But then you realize at some point that, you know, your your happiness that you're perceiving is temporary. So like, I remember like, I'd be like, oh, I'd be bummed out or something. And I'd go buy like some sneakers and I'd feel better, but it was like temporary. A little retail therapy. Yeah. A little retail therapy every now and then. And you just like, you feel great for those 20 minutes and you walk out and you get in the car and you drive home and you take the sneakers out of the box and you're like, all right, cool. Now what? And it's just like, you're back to the same thing. So it's just like, it's definitely not worth it. Gear can be like that too. It's like, oh oh, man, I just want to get that piece of gear. And then you get it and you're like, okay, I got it. Now what? Exactly. But for me, I was never a big gear guy. Luckily, I was always about the bare minimum. I don't know why. And I've always been really cautious about gear. And so I don't own a lot of gear. I, and I think that also comes from Charles. Because um, we at the studio didn't have a lot of, you know, outboard gear. And he wasn't really big into gear. He was more about getting it done. What do we need to get it done? Okay, we need this. Okay, let's get it done. And I carried that even having worked for Salam, who has tons of gear. Salam loves gear. And even then, like I was always kind of like trying to find the most efficient way to get it done while still sounding good. And that's just stayed with me. And people ask me, what should I buy? And I'm like, don't buy anything. Buy something when you really, really, really need it. Like if you don't really, really, really need it, just you'll forget about it in a week. It's over. It'll sit on a shelf. You know, I remember Gary was mixing something for Salam and we were, you know, Salam was like, ah, I kind of, I missed the console. Like at that time he had a Yamaha DM 2000 and, you know, he was like, hi, I missed the sound of the SSL. So I kind of did some research and the SPL mix dream had come out, the summing mixer. And I was like, Hey, there's this cool, you know, thing. It kind of like, you know, lets you kind of do some summing and, and he was like, all right, cool, let's try it. And we bought a, you know, SPL Dream and had a patch bay built for it because it had inserts on every channel. And in the long run, you spend about $5,000 and we used it like three times. I do this to myself. Like I, I look at stuff and I see it. I'm like, Ooh, I, that'd be great to have. And then I realize, but with that, it's not just the item itself. It's how do you how are you going to connect it to everything? Well, then there's the cables and the time it's going to take to connect all that and make it ride and yeah. Maybe there's you know in your case a patch bay involved. It becomes very um laborious and it really yeah. takes you away from ultimately what you're trying to achieve. And sometimes it could just kind of throw you off of what you're trying to do. I'm constantly looking at my setup and looking going, okay, how can I get more out of this or and then I'll be like, okay, well, if I add this and it's like, well, well, what if I want it on a separate set of channels or what if I just want it on the stereo bus or, 
you know, and then it just becomes, well, now I need an extra row of patch bay. And it's just like, okay, well, now I need more cables. And then, and it's just like, uh, the more I think about it, the less I want to do it. <laughs> so it, it's just, that's why my setup has been pretty much the same for a few years now. And I, I haven't actually, you know, done anything crazy. Well, we're about out of time, and I want to ask you, what do you think the next five to ten years from a career standpoint holds for you? Where would you like to see it go? Uh, well, for me personally, I'm actually working on just uh, working on up-and-coming artists and releasing music, getting a little bit more onto the production kind of overseer side, and just working on stuff like that really just music that I really like and also, you know, trying to make great recordings because at the end of the day, even though mixing pays a lot of my bills, I really, really, truly enjoy recording. And that's like probably my biggest passion as far as audio is concerned. So I'll probably, mm-hmm. you'll probably see me doing more of that. Also, we're getting into some new endeavors at our studio at Vanquish and we'll be kind of doing some, some teaching out of the studio, some short courses and stuff like that. So I love teaching as well. So I just like talking. So Frank, thanks so much. It was great to talk with you. I had no idea your story was such a, an intense ride. Thank you, man. Uh, I'm, I've been really fortunate and I, I love telling it because yeah, I want people to hopefully learn from it and, and maybe kind of adjust their, you know, path if they can before it gets too silly for them. I think it's important. I love sharing. Yeah. Oh, I think it's very important. And I, I appreciate you being so candid with me about all the details. It's it's yeah, quite a lesson for others to learn. So, well, awesome, man. You take care and uh, I'll, I'll see you whenever I see you next. Take it easy, man. Thanks. Uh, all right. Take care. Bye-bye. Frank Sicoro here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. As I mentioned earlier, stop on by workingclassaudio.com and check out well over 200 other guests for you to choose from and some uh, bonus content and fill out the guest suggestion form and uh, maybe click on one of the links for one of our sponsors who make the show possible. I'm talking about Universal Audio, AEA Ribbon Mics, Audio Technica, Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, and the License Lab. We, of course, want to thank our friend Mr. Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme music. And we want to thank Chuck Smith for the incredible voice at the beginning of the show. Tell all your friends, spread the word. I'll have another show for you next week. And until then, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.